0: Hi there and welcome back to Amplify, the Digital Marketing Entrepreneur Podcast. I'm Bob Gentle and every week I'm joined by creators, consultants and practitioners who share what makes their business work. Whether you run your own business or you're just thinking of stepping out on your own for the first time, you're in the right place. If you're new to the show, then welcome along. Take a second right now to subscribe in your podcast player so you don't miss new weekly episodes and you can dig into some older ones when you finish this one. If it's your first time joining us, then you'll probably want to join our Facebook group too. Just visit the shortcut URL, amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders, and you'll be taken right there. Now, before I introduce today's guest, I need to explain something. Normally, my guests run small businesses, teams, or something like that. This week, that's just not the case. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that maybe this week's guest might be sponsoring the show or something like that. But that's not the case. This week's guest might be a little bit further down the road than some of us. They might have scaled things more than most, but he did it, and it's his story, and I decided it was really relevant. So this week, my guest is Tom Culzer. Tom founded AWeber at the age of 21, and in this episode, he shares his story from 90s email marketing pioneer right through to the current day. He literally invented the email autoresponder, and I think he might even be a better snowboarder than me, and both of those are things you might love or hate. And frankly, I love them both. So welcome along and let's meet Tom. So this week on the podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Kulzer to the show. Tom, do you want to maybe start just by introducing who you are, where you are and the kind of work you do?
1: Sure. Thanks for having me, Bob. Uh, so again, my name is Tom Kulzer with A AWeber. Uh, we... Um, Man, or I manage uh, an email marketing platform for small businesses. So I started this myself uh, about almost 21 years ago now. Uh, so I've been at this for quite a while. Uh, we're based out of Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, in the U.S. And uh, we have about 100,000 small business customers around the world that use our platform to communicate with their customers, with their team members, with their partners, etc. Um, so we've been at this for a while. i seen, seen all kinds of interesting things to learn from. <laughs> and you
0: said 1998 was when you started this. Mm-hmm. And I was reflecting on what 1998 looked like for me. And I think we're similar <laughs> ages. Um, and I was remembering Lycos, GeoCities, CompuServe, AOL, bulletin boards, and dial-up yeah. modems. Um, so email marketing... In 1998 was pretty much it for digital marketing. What possessed you back then? Why why email marketing?
1: Uh, well, it was it was uh, it was definitely a very different world then. Uh, honestly, it was a it was a need that I had for myself, um, and and I think as many of your listeners and entrepreneurs, kind of you know you kind of scratch the itch that you have, of the problem that you're trying to solve, and you find that other people have the same problems. Um, so back in back then, before I started AWeber, I was selling uh, wireless modems. So this was before we all had iPhones and such in our pockets that had multi-gigabit connections for fast downloading, it was a very slow modem that you could mount on the back of a laptop uh, that connected in via a you know serial cable for those that are familiar with that. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know it was it was kind of a, I described it as a brick, and uh, I was selling these uh, as a as a distributor for a particular company. Company. and in uh, and, and going to trade shows and such to, to represent these products and to introduce people to them, you know, I, felt, I found the need to follow up with people that I had talked to at these conferences, and that was a very uh, laborious process, uh, and um, I found that over time, the things that I was saying to people were more or less the same thing across you know, different segments of, of the folks that I was interacting with. So I, I basically automated it and I created uh, what was an early marketing automation campaign for following up with people. So when I got back from a conference, I took the people that had expressed interest and gave me their card that asked for more information. I would add them to a list and we'd, I'd send out a series of emails that explain what the product was in more depth and how it could help them and answered common questions that I got and sent over a couple of weeks and uh, um, that did very well in that one it saved me a lot of time and two it generated a lot of additional interest that i didn't have to manually go out and do myself Um, and that allowed me to spend more time actually working with the people that were that expressed interest and wanted to take it through to to a sale Um, so that was really a product that i'd kind of you know, internally developed. And in the course of, I was in college at the time, and uh, in the course of my studies, decided to end up leaving that company and and focus on school. And a bunch of other folks that I had shared that same, you know, program with, that were distributors for this company as well in different parts of the country, um, started coming to me and saying, hey, like, can I buy that automated program that you had set up for us? (laughs) When you quit and (laughs) stopped running it, uh, you know, we saw our sales go down. Um, because we didn't have that and we had to spend a lot more time on it. So they came to me and said, hey, I'll pay for this. And one thing led to another and, and uh, you know, AWeber was born as a result. So. And back in
0: 1998, the idea of a SaaS or software as a service product was probably non-existent. And as we currently know it as a web-based SaaS. So was it originally a web-based SaaS or was it a desktop product?
1: No, it was always a web-based SaaS, and that's wow. really where kind of the value of the product is. Like you don't have to you don't have to deal with it and manage a, a lot of it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think like when the SaaS term really gained prominence, um, but it was always just a web page that you would go to and interact with it on on a web platform. So it was never software that you installed on your computer.
0: Yeah, for the '90s, that's pretty hardcore.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah. You know albeit like the first iterations were very, very simple <laughs> yeah. so you know what what the product that we have today is 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 much more uh you know robust than than what we had back then you know back then it was just like one web page and you entered a subject line in a plain text body of an email and a and a from address and and that was pretty much it <laughs> right so, so um
0: and so when when you started to because when you when you start a business like that, it doesn't necessarily m- m- pay you a salary for a while. But how long was it before you this was your main occupation?
1: Well, I had the benefit of being a college student at the time, uh, so it was certainly not something where I was living with much of a you know I didn't have I didn't have much income other than another side job and the the modem thing that I was doing. Uh, so there wasn't a whole lot of income there to try to replace. Um, but it was. It was within the first, um, you know, I basically, basically the premise was is I did two years of college and what would have been my junior year of college. Um, I basically told, said to my parents like, I'd like to take a semester off. I've got this idea so far. I think it has a lot of really, you know, it has a lot of early interest. I want to see what happens with this. And if it works great, I'll keep doing it. If it doesn't, I'll go back to school. Um, and within the first couple of months, it was very clearly going to be something that was successful. So it was within the first year that, you know, I could live off of what it was. You know, I'll yeah. be a standard of living when you're coming from college student to living. <laughs> 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 it doesn't take a whole lot of money for that that to, uh, you know, be a reality there. So um, but it, it grew pretty quickly early on.
0: And. These days, when you look at the way SaaS products are, are built and funded, bootstrapping isn't something that people really aim to do anymore. It's much more venture capitalist funding or bust. Um, uh,
1: I, would, I would actually disagree with that statement to some extent. Well, I think it I'm, depends on the circles that you travel in um, and where you're getting your information about how many companies are bootstrapped versus venture funded. I think there's a lot of uh, glam and glory that goes behind venture funding. Uh, and they get a lot of press, but there's a whole lot of bootstrap companies out there. Um, you know, and I would say that there's a lot of bootstrap companies out there that are very successful in in and of their own right. Uh, you just don't tend to hear about them as much because the media doesn't glamorize that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Which is a shame to, to some extent, in my opinion.
0: Well, it's not my area and I'm very happy to be educated. Because really, I see what the rest of the world sees in the media, whereas you're in the thick of it. But my question was really going to be pretty basic, really. At what point did you know, actually, I need to make my first hire? Because when you're bootstrapping a business, that first hire, it, it really needs to be self-funding. Yeah. So what was that first hire for you?
1: yeah uh, that's a great question um, it's honestly something that I look back on as one of my biggest mistakes early on <laughs> not not that I did the hire that I waited so long right. um, and and it was really something that you know in in retrospect it doesn't seem like a big deal but at the time if I could put myself in that headspace of the, the time it was wow I'm gonna be responsible for like someone else's like livelihood. And I have to make sure that I don't screw that up, and that you know I don't suddenly have a revenue change that causes me to not be able to pay them. You know, being bootstrapped at all. Um, and so I, I waited a lot longer than I should have, um, both from some of the economic model of it, and just being afraid of making that commitment um, because it becomes an ongoing expense. <laughs> you know, it's the reality of that, um, but also. I think just somewhat of the like hiring process and like how you pay somebody, you know, dealing with payroll. Those things all felt a little daunting to me as a kind of self-taught software engineer. You know, where I wrote all of our initial code and everything. That sort of thing was the sort of thing I could hack out at night, and it the, the repercussions of screwing that up is is my, you know, my my staging environment the next day didn't work right um but the the repercussions of screwing up hiring was i hire the wrong person they're terrible with customers or um you know i mess up the taxes and and those sort of things like those those felt like bigger ramifications to me and they were kind of scary um you know in in hindsight you you place an ad you interview some people you try to make the right selection um you know you hire a payroll company which are very plentiful these days and and very inexpensive to do and you outsource dealing with all the taxes and all of that sort of stuff um and and that that part i think has gotten a lot easier over the years but i I think that the biggest thing that i look at so it was my our first hire was actually a customer solutions um for the first year and a half i literally did everything in the business we had multiple thousands of customers before i hired anyone so i was doing you know our, our customer solutions operation, you know, engineering stuff, or marketing, all the accounting—like I did everything. Um, and and I think having made that hire earlier, which I could have afforded to do, um, would have freed my time up to do bigger and more important things as as a result. So. Um,
0: and when when you're in your early twenties, uh, you don't really have a peer group. That's. Used to running businesses. So, did you have mentors that were helping you along there, or did you simply have to make it up as you went along? Uh,
1: there was a, a, a- a fair amount of fake it till you make it, <laughs> make it yeah. up as you go along. Um, I spent a lot of time in the library, believe it or not. Uh, I, I'm a prolific reader of books and, and, and that sort of stuff, um, because, there you know, there just wasn't a whole lot of, no- you know, there's obviously knowledge about starting and running businesses, but the whole, you know, it's internet marketing and all of the things that go along with the internet were very new at that point, and there weren't a whole lot of resources Um, I actually ran a, I had started an email newsletter for, um, for small business owners at the time that it was a discussion group basically where we could ask each other questions. And it was kind of my early attempt at developing a peer group, um, of other people that were going through similar experiences and and you could ask questions of, um, so that was super helpful early on. Uh, I think that, um, that was really helpful, and and a, a number of years in, I joined another group that was mostly on, online entrepreneurs that we get together a couple of times a year, and there was a discussion list that was more formalized, um, and I really got to know those people better, and they were really helpful at giving good feedback and experiences, and and now as our business has grown, I've joined other peer groups that are larger businesses, and you know, so so those yeah. have definitely grown and helped, but a lot of it early on was. Well, you try something. Well, that didn't work. Try something different, you know? Like, <laughs> so.
0: which, which brings me nicely to modern email marketing <laughs> because for a lot of people, that's how it is. Um, and AWeber now, how many clients have you got?
1: Uh we have over a hundred thousand clients yeah. around the world that that use our platform. So in all shapes and sizes of businesses, from enterprise down to your solo entrepreneur, you know, nighttime kitchen table, you know, <laughs> kind of folks. So
0: Yeah, I was reflecting on where I first encountered a Weber and I've gone back through my emails to check. And the first email I had that discussed A. Weber was from a client in 2011. But the first time I really became properly aware of it was um, when I read Jeff Walker's book, Launch. I don't know if you're aware of that.
1: Yep. Yeah. I I know Jeff Uh, very well. I thought you might. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, But between he and Michael Hyatt, for a long time, I never heard anything but A. Weber. But I'm guessing they're not your typical client. What, if, if you were to say, okay, one business that should be using AWeber now, who would it be, the sort of, the AWeber avatar, if you like?
1: Yeah, well, we have several different avatars, um, you know, as far as uh, kind of profiles or, or, or personas of, of folks that use our platform um, from that small business. You know, at the end of the day, anyone that's running a business should be doing some form of email marketing, whether it's our platform or somebody else's. Um, we tend to be more suited to that small business market we work a lot with agencies that work with small businesses um, you know but we have you know whether they're digital marketers whether they're you know, car dealerships like you know brick-and-mortar you know e- stores e-commerce stores we work with all of those different types of, of businesses um, you know the the you know, so it really ranges the gamut so but it, everyone should be using some form of, of email marketing I think the biggest thing that I, I, I'd like to kind of position email marketing is it's not just a sales tool and I think that's one thing that's like it's kind of like when that light bulb goes off in your head of thinking of how else can you use email in your business that isn't just generating more sales like so think about hiring someone so like internally when when we hire a new team member here we use email marketing to train that new team member about our internal systems and processes and team culture and those sort of things we have a a series of follow-up messages that go to somebody that start right from the moment that they're they're actually hired before they even walk through our you know front door on their first day kind of setting up their expectations Um, similarly you know you can use email for uh, training you know new customers on how to consume your product so it's not just about the sales aspect, and when you when you when you flip that switch and you go, oh, I can use it over here, and I can use it over here, and I can use it over here, um, and it becomes really powerful time saver, um, and and a really great educational tool uh, that does a lot of work for you that you then don't have to do. Um, so I think that's that's a really great distinction to, to make with email that I think a lot of small businesses miss.
0: Is um, am I right? I don't know if I'm right or wrong, I'm taking a bit of a risk here. But the, the reason I got excited about a barber when I first tried it was that it was my first exposure to sequenced based emails uh-huh. and any of my customers will know that one of the first things I'm going to speak to them about is email sequences. Uh-huh. Um, was that your idea?
1: Uh, yeah, that was basically the first thing that I set up was was creating that sequence of of emails. You know, today, you know, some people call them email sequences. Back in the day, we called them you know autoresponder follow up campaigns. You know, all the the kind of the marketing. These days, it's like marketing automation is like the fancy way to say you know follow up emails, and and really what it is is it's just. You know, it's message one on day one and message two on day two or message three on day seven. Um, and, and it's it's a sequence of emails that you receive over time. Now, obviously, with marketing automation, the tools have gotten a lot more sophisticated to be able to do things based on whether you click or open or don't open or don't click, those sort of things. But back in the day when I started Aweber, there was one other service that I was aware of that I had found online that... Um, Basically, you could have one kind of instantaneous message when someone subscribed, and then one follow up message that you could send at some point in the future, whether it was the next day or a number of days later. And I actually contacted the owner of that service uh, back before I wrote the initial versions of AWeber because I was looking for a solution to my problem. And I was like, hey, can I add more than one follow up message? And they're like, no, it doesn't do that. I was like, well, Like, can I pay you to add that to your service so that I can send more than one message? And they're like, no. (laughs) And then I went and built a Weber. (laughs) Right. Um, So, Uh, you know, did I invent it? No, I I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) But it it was definitely a good idea at the time. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I think it's, it's very difficult sometimes to explain the impact of being able to send this kind of autoresponder in a way that, people who have never really thought about it would really understand. But I'm I'm rambling a little bit when I get to this question. I'm gonna to have to go and edit myself afterwards to get this a little bit more articulate. But the most successful time I ever had with email was with Aweber. And it's really in preparing for this conversation, it really made me reflect on my own experience with email marketing, which really leads me to this question. And I meant, I warned you earlier, there was gonna be a controversial question. And this this is it. <laughs> there are other products that do email marketing now, and there are other products that do sequence-based email marketing. And I've noticed a trend that people that you might call digital marketing influencers will push one product, and then they'll push another product. And this seems to be driven by affiliate schemes. And it doesn't seem to matter which SaaS product you're talking about. There's a if you If you do a YouTube search for, let's say, WordPress plugin for membership sites Uh you'll get a lot of people telling you how this is the best thing you could ever use but then you very quickly find out they're running an affiliate scheme behind that and there's products like ConvertKit, ClickFunnels and things like that they have very generous affiliate schemes Uh how much do you feel that that impacts the information people can consume about which products are good and which products are bad. You, you kind of know where I'm going with the question. I'm not really articulating it very clearly.
1: No, I think you I think it's a great question. Um, I, I think that the, you know, we have a we have an affiliate program, a reseller program. Uh, we call it an advocate program uh, here. And, and, and really what, it, what it's designed it to do is, is, you know, compensate folks that would be recommending products otherwise and that are usually customers of ours as well. Um, I, I personally, you know, I, I look at any sort of, you know, recommendation, um, you know, from an ethics standpoint of like, you have to be 100% transparent with, with the recommendations that are being made. You know, when you go on and you search for best whatever service online these days, you'll come up with a number of different um, services that or, or websites that are like, you know, top 10, you know, CRM products or top 10 email marketing products. A lot of those websites are are affiliate based and, and even sponsorship based. So they want over and above what they are. So it's all essentially paid placement, um, which. And, and you have to really dig to understand that as a consumer, that that's how they're being compensated and how they make their money <laughs> at the end of the day is oftentimes who's paying them the most is the top recommendation. Um, and not based on any sort of, um, you know, not, not based on any sort of specific merit that, that any, you know, a comparison, you know, kind of thing that's being done. So I think yeah. that as a consumer, anywhere you know when you're reading comments on Amazon before you buy something like you know I know it's oftentimes really obvious that it's the business itself or somebody they have paid to write comments on there you know extolling the virtues of their product um, so it's I think you just have to be really skeptical as a consumer talk to your friends um, you know that's been one of the biggest ways that we've grown over the years is is just Pure referrals, like word of mouth referrals, and not like people trying to get compensated for for their referrals. Um, so you know, I, I yeah. think just be skeptical as a consumer. So
0: I, I think really where I was coming from was that there's the referral industry, and then there's the influencer referral industry. Yeah, where where the big names have got clear favorite products, but actually, what you don't understand is how incentivized they are.
1: Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> very and, yeah. so speaking is one who uh, who, who deals with that um, and we have we have people in our marketing team that do nothing but that um, it, it's It's a huge thing out there these days and and anybody that is speaking on our behalf, we have very specific requirements that they disclose that with folks, but I know a lot of other folks don't you know mm. to, to where they may not be being paid as a sponsor, but they have equity in companies and it's like really like are you disclosing that on a regular basis like you look like you're stand stand alone and then you're just recommending your favorite service but like no you actually own part of the company um, yeah so well, and, so it's if just, anybody's listening as I'm a open. consumer be skeptical ask lots of questions <laughs> ask your friends at the end of the day what they use so because i think what they use is necessary is frequently different than what they might be recommending which i always yeah. get a kick out of <laughs> okay
0: <laughs> So getting back to email for small business then, there are really two questions. The first one uh, will always come to list building. And I am really curious to understand from your perspective, I don't know if you can tell me actually, but if I have a look around, for example, the AWeber integrations section on the website, Mm -hmm. and I look at lead generation, there are probably a few dozen integrations there that you're recommending. Do you know if statistically which of those actually perform best? And if, if you do, can you tell me? There's probably two different answers.
1: Yeah, um, I wouldn't say that. It's interesting. So we have internally, we definitely have stats on like which integration providers um, Uh, like which which integration providers have customers that have the most like overall kind of lifetime value so we definitely look at you know but different integrations bring different types of customers like some will have a lot of users but those users might be smaller whereas others might only have a handful of folks that 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 are using both of our platforms but they're just at a much larger scale so it really depends Um, I think what you're asking is more of a conversion rate kind of, kind of question of which ones are converting more, you know, more website visitors into actual subscribers. Um, yeah, that's correct. that one, that one's harder because we don't usually have access to the number of visitors that someone is seeing, um, you know, before they get, like, all we see is the subscriber. We don't see the individual website visitors because those those integrations are talking to our API, so we don't have anything on that end customer's website that would tell us how many visitors they're getting. So we don't have conversion rates in in what I think you're looking for there specifically. Speaking yeah. speaking specific to our own like our own opt-in forms and flyovers and you know little widgets that you can put on your website in order to get subscribers uh, or have people opt in it's a really it ranges a the gamut there's not like one specific type of form that tends to perform the best um, and it, you know it's it highly different depending on what type of industry and those sort of things that you're in I'd say the biggest thing is you gotta you know the biggest thing with with having you know and, and generating new subscribers to your to your list um, is remember that at the end of the day like I think as marketers we have a tendency to start talking in numbers and percentages and those sort of things rather than like kind of go back to the, um, you know, go back to like sitting and having a meeting with somebody. Like there's somebody on the other end of the computer, it's a person and they have problems and they're looking for a particular solution to whatever it is that they're having a problem with. And that's why they ended up on your website. Um, So how can you address those problems for them and how are you adding value to them? Um, And it's similarly like be transparent people don't like to get tricked. So like, you know, first and foremost, you gotta ask for the opt-in. <laughs> you know, it's it's always f- kind of fun when, uh, you know, I do a review with a customer on, on somebody that's like, hey, we wanna see how we can increase our subscriber base. And it's like, I go to their website, they send me, that they're, they say they're having trouble uh, getting new subscribers. I'm like, I can't find a way to sign up. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's like i'm eight pages deep in your site and i still haven't found a form to sign up on it's like you gotta you gotta actually ask and while that may like you and i probably laugh about that but like you know it, it's very very common is to just like don't ask or like the forms all the way at the bottom of the site um or the form is like You go to the website and like two seconds later there's like a popover that comes up and it covers the whole website up what's the first thing i know that i do when i go to websites that do that i hit the little x or i hit escape or i leave the website it's like i don't know who you are i don't know what value you're providing me yet i don't want to sign up for anything yet so it's it's kind of that you know have give people some time to actually consume what it is that they're there on your website for, and to see that you might be able to solve their problem, and then ask for the opt-in, but do it in a way that is kind of on their time and not like in your face right away, I think. I think sometimes people kind of shoot themselves in the foot with that sort of thing by getting a little too anxious about asking for it. So they're either too anxious or they're, (laughs) they don't put it anywhere on their site. Um, I
0: I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think people are too quick to try and promote with their email. And as you said, remember there's a person on the other end of it, and you need to build a relationship. And that that is from the very first moment they hit your website. And the last thing you would do as a car salesman is rush up and ask someone if they brought their credit card.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, Convert now. Buy right now, you'll get a 10% off kind of thing. And it's like, no, give me a few moments. I gotta check out your product first. Um, I think the other thing that when, when you're dealing with email in general um, is I think that people tend to think, uh, and, and when they're writing something, they tend to think of like, hey, I'm writing to 100 people or I'm writing to 1,000 people, and, which causes them to write their message differently. Um, and it's really important to remember, again, that when you send an email, you might send it to 1,000 people, but you're sending it to one person at a time. I'm not sitting in a room with a thousand other people where you're you're you know in a stadium and you're reading your email to me through a loudspeaker kind of thing. It's I'm you know I'm laying in bed reading your email on my phone, or I'm in the passenger seat of my car having a conversation with my wife, um, and and I get your email and I might be consuming it there, or I might be at my you know at some school function or something. Um, but like you know you're you're talking to one person at a time, and I think when when you sit down and you and you're creating your content, like write to write to your friend or write to the customer that you just talked to that you're really familiar with their business, you know, and, and right in that context, and I think that context switch changes how you interact with somebody there, and I think it makes it more genuine, it makes it more appealing as a recipient, um, and I think overall it creates more value that way versus being kind of corporatized around how you communicate and and turn people into numbers.
0: I I want I think you're absolutely right there. And I think where I would like to go now is I remember when I read Jeff Walker's book Launch. It was my first the first time anybody really opened my eyes to the simple text-based email. And I know there there are many email marketing platforms now, the majority of which are really geared towards the very flamboyant, fancy, graphic, promotional emails. You have a website, uh, not a website, um, a visual email builder now. Mm-hmm. But, but what's your perspective on the very visual versus the simple text-based email?
1: I think they each have their place. Um, I think there's platforms that lack features that make it sound like... The lack of that feature is a conscious decision <laughs> into what the, they might be giving recommendations for people to use. But I think they both have their place. Um, you know, they both get equally good delivery. Uh, I, I would uh, statistically, the uh, you know the more graphically based emails do get generally better interactions overall, um, as far as click through rates and and open rates. You can't track an open rate on a on a plain text message to begin with um Hmm. but uh you know i think that they're you know i think they each have their place um and i think that there are a lot of things that you can do with uh a more you know graphically based email um these days that can create more engaging more valuable emails over time i think that i think that some folks when they think about what a graphical email is they might think of like the sales promotion that they get from target you know what i mean yeah um and that's not what the vast majority of of messages need to look like nor would i recommend most small businesses to be sending email that looks like that um you know what i do recommend that they send is stuff that looks kind of like their website you know it's a familiarity thing at the end of the day deliverability these days is about engagement um, so anything you can do to build familiarity with what it is that you're doing and the expectation that like your email is gonna come on a certain time and date uh, with certain frequency um, and look a certain way so that they recognize it go oh yeah that's that email from Bob that I wanted to read um, it, I think is, is really helpful um, but they you know they certainly each have their place so it really depends on what you're what you're overall going for um, but I don't think one is is necessarily better than the other for all use cases. So
0: and you you also mentioned deliverability there and when I'm working with clients on email marketing deliverability is a big anxiety because they see these open rates of 5 10 15% and they've got big mailing lists of 7000 people which for me it's it's a big list. What can people do to try and increase their open rates that doesn't necessarily mean they just cull their call a large portion of their list.
1: Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's interesting. It depends. There's a lot of individual scenarios that kind of go into it. So so I'll take your example there. So you talked about somebody that might have a seven thousand person list, and they have a five percent open rate. Um, they have an engagement problem, mm. pure and simple. That um, they they clearly have a group of people there that may have at one time requested information, um, but has not been reading, not been opening, not been clicking the the emails that they're getting. And over time, what that tells the machine learning algorithms at you know, Gmail and Yahoo and Hotmail and so forth is people don't want my emails. If they're not engaging with them, ultimately mailbox providers learn that, oh, they're not engaging with them. So they must not like them. So they're going to put them in the spam folder. And it's not necessarily a permission thing. It's just that they're no longer engaged with it. Um, So depending on how low your open rates actually are, if you if you've got five percent open rates, you need to be calling your list to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, How far back you need to go for engagement, um, I would generally say, and, and this is, again, how marketers often turn things into numbers. Of if you've got somebody on you that is subscribed to your your content and I'm assuming you're putting something in there that they need to periodically they would be compelled to click on to learn more about if you haven't had if someone's been on your list and getting emails from you on a regular basis let's say weekly or monthly um, for 12 months and they've not engaged with any of them they're already gone like let's be honest they've essentially unsubscribed without unsubscribing because their email is probably already going to the spam folder And you have to remember at the same time like spam folder these days is not it's not an all or nothing thing you know i can i can get an email to my gmail address and you can get one to your gmail address and it might go to spam for you it might go to inbox for me because i openly i actively engage with it and read it and spend time in it and google can see that whereas yours um, you know every time you get it you throw it in the trash folder or you market a spam <laughs> you know and so it's very independent much in the same way that like when you go to Google and search for something you know email marketing you're gonna see different results than I see uh, because all of those experiences are very very individual so it comes down to a lot of that engagement and um, what it is that you're sending and that's why I talk a lot about that initial opt-in of setting expectations of what are you gonna send people? Why is it valuable to them? And how frequently are you gonna send it? Because we'll often see folks that have engagement issues where their sign-up forms says "sign up to get you know eight tips to I don't know you know like eight 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 camping tips and then they uh, you know they send them the eight camping tips and then they proceed to send them three emails a day for the next like three months. Yeah, who expects that when they opt in? It's okay if I. Got told ahead of time, hey, I'm going to send you three tips a day about having a better camping experience. Okay, that's great if I want that, but if I don't want three emails a day, I'm not going to opt into that. But you know, if I sign up and you don't tell me that, I'm more than likely going to either unsubscribe or I'm going to throw it in the spam folder. I'm going to mark it as spam. Um, and and that's and that's you know that experience that we need to put ourselves in as as a recipient of stuff and not as the sender of stuff. Um, so those those sorts of engagements and expectation setting upfront can help you with the pain later on um, you know we talk about removing folks that are you know where their ad- addresses are invalid over time um, and that's something that any any decent email marketing platform is going to automatically handle the one thing that I think as an industry no platform to date that I'm aware of specifically like automatically removes unengaged people. It's something we leave up to individual customers to, to, to segment and do. Um, but I really feel like we're kind of approaching a point in time where that almost needs to be just an automated thing that you do um, Yeah. because they've already essentially unsubscribed it. And all that you're doing by continuing to email them is Tell the algorithm, hey, I'm sending all these emails to these people that don't really want it. Send it to the spam folder, and over time, that that bigger group of unengaged people out outshines the group that is still engaged, and you and you end up sending more and more of your email to spam. Um, So it's a it's a balance. Um, You know, if you've got 15% open rates, you're probably better, but you should still probably be looking at what you know what your overall engagement anything above 20 i would generally say you're you're doing you're doing pretty solid if you're below 10 percent, you got work to do <laughs>
0: mm. but is it fair to say then, my, my interpretation of what you said of some of the things you said was that by actually removing the non-engaged people from your list the signal will be to the ai that the people that are left are engaged, and your deliverability should actually increase, and not simply stay static with those people that are left.
1: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, and we can I, see it. We can see it in our own internal metrics across thousands of customers, because um, we have our own like kind of internal reputation system that looks at. Different customers' open rates and those sort of things, and like if you have really high open rates, you get delivered with other customers that have really high open rates. If you have really low open rates, you get delivered with other people that have really low open rates. And we can definitely statistically see when different customers, you know, will will you know call unengaged people, their open rates instantaneously go up, and you see over time you get higher engagement rates, and their their open rates tend to climb over time. So it's not. You know, I, I look at anytime someone tells me, oh, I have 7,000 subscribers or however many it happens to be, whether it's a hundred or 7,000 or 700,000. It's like, I don't really care. It's how many folks do you have engaged and what is a percentage of, of that overall list that is engaged? Because if you tell me you got 5% open rates, I go, Ooh, you got some issues. You know, unless you're sending like really plain looking messages where it's not encouraging people to like turn on image, you know, turn on images in their inbox, um. But uh, you know, if you have low opens, low click-through rates, that's just you're sending all the wrong signals. <laughs> it's like dating; you're just you, you got food <laughs> in your face, and it's just not sending a good vibe. <laughs>
0: okay, where I would like to go next, because I'm aware we're going to have to wrap this up quite soon, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. But what I'd like to ask you about is, you're seeing traditionally email marketing platforms now getting involved in things like Facebook ads and. Social media scheduling and things like that. Where where is Aweber headed with um, with its future? I'm I'm not suggesting it should be doing any of those, but clearly you're not standing still. So what's next for Aweber?
1: Yeah, we have a hundred plus people here in our office every day. Uh, the The vast majority of them are software engineers, so we're constantly iterating on the platform. Um, you know, I think that there there is definitely uh kind of a broad spectrum of different providers out there that are offering different things Um, i think that there is a lot of room to iterate in email i think that there are are, um, drawbacks to having kind of that all-in-one platform i kind of describe it as like you know master of master of nothing uh you, you, you do a lot of things but you don't do any of them really well yeah. Um, I think for us, you know, our focus has you know, over 21 years been on doing email really well and doing it better than anyone else out there does and doing it simple but powerfully. Um, and I think that that is something that we're gonna continue to do. We've been working with Google on uh, their AMP for Email program uh, that basically it essentially turns an email into a web page in the sense of I can send email content now that's interactive in your inbox where you can fill out forms, where you can click buttons and get responses much like you would on a regular web page where I can fill out a survey and it'll show me the survey results like right in the email in real time, wow. dynamically based on everybody else reading and interacting with the message in their inbox. So some really cool technology that's that's coming out that that Gmail supports, that Yahoo's working on support for, as well as other ISPs are working on support for, um, that I think is going to make emails even more compelling and more engaging than they've been in the past, um, and and building really simple tools for customers to be able to do those really powerful things that that help engage their audiences in more meaningful ways. Um, so I don't you know I don't see us doing a shift to social ad spend management it's just there's lots of other providers that do that well out there and and you know i don't think that there's a whole lot of value in having that all in one single platform i think that it just becomes Mm. complex and people don't know where to start and and you lose you lose focus so
0: no i think I'm, i'm really quite intrigued by by what you described there because it's not something i'd really heard anything about before so i'm gonna go and hit google momentarily
1: <laughs> i'll send you a couple links <laughs> so yeah yeah but it's uh, amp for email amp uh if you look for amp for email you can either search for that on our on our site or you, there's google has a number of really good resources as well for it so all right
0: well tom i guess i've probably taken enough of your time my last question really should be if people want to connect with you how would you like them to do that
1: Sure. Uh, if you want to reach out to uh, to our our team here, we're here 24/7, uh, literally every day of the year. Um, <laughs> so you can reach out to us at aweber.com, A-W-E-B-E-R.com. com. Uh, if you want to hit me specifically, you can find me at uh, Tom at com or you can hit me up on Twitter at uh, t kulzer, uh, t k u l z e r dot com, or excuse me, t uh at Twitter. So.
0: Tom Couser from Aweber, thank you very much for your time. You've been a great guest. Hey, thanks Uh, for
1: having me, Bob.
0: My pleasure. As Tom said, email marketing is about relationships, not promotions. Email marketing, when it's done right, allows us to tell stories, build trust, stay front of mind in a way that no other vehicle can. I hope you got something out of Tom's story, and I know I did. Before I go, just a quick reminder to subscribe and if you haven't already, then join our Facebook group. Again, you can find a link in the show notes or just go to amplifyme.fm forward slash insiders. If you're a regular listener or a new listener, then I would love for you to connect with me on social media. Follow me on Instagram or Twitter where I'm at Bob Gentle. And if you do, then message me and I can follow you back. If you enjoyed the show, then I would love for you to review it on iTunes. It would mean a lot to me and it's the very best way to help me reach more subscribers. My name's Bob Gentle. Thanks again to Tom for giving us his time this week and to you for listening and see you next week.